Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONCOEURCITYCAST20. Today on CityCast Portland, we're talking about the immediate aftermath of the Portland teacher strike, how a wonky city land deal might displace 35 families, and why the Burnside Bridge is getting torn down. Joining me on this week's News Roundup are Willamette Week City Hall reporter Sophie Peel and our very own executive producer, John Atariani. It's Friday, December 1st. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. I have to tell you guys this embarrassing thing. Whenever I get a text from anyone, like even if I'm in this, like mostly when I'm in the solitude of my own home, I, it's like this compulsive thing. I say, who be dinging? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really glad I didn't say that this time. <laughs> oh, no, that's oh staying. Gosh. That is our <laughs> intro. <laughs> I thought we weren't recording doing that. It's <laughs> kind of embarrassing. Oh, we are. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Friday News Roundup. Sophie, John, thanks for being here. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having us. Will you guys excuse me for a second? I just need to talk to our audience real quick. Go for it. Um, okay, new listeners, I just need to see you. I need to see you back here for a second. So first off, glad you're here. Excellent pot choice. Just wanted to catch you up. Today is a day we break down some of the biggest local stories of the week. Every Friday, we're joined by the best and brightest journalists in town, like Sophie Peel here, and occasionally they bring us stories they've been working on for weeks, which I think might be the case today. Right, Sophie? Um, maybe a week. <laughs> <laughs> Still exciting. <laughs> also, before we jump into the news, I usually ask our guests an opening question that really has nothing to do with anything, but that's how we like it. To our regular listeners, Supra. All right, I'm going to head back to uh, John and Sophie. Thanks for your patience, guys. In the past month or so, we've doubled our audience. So I just wanted to give a shout Woo. out to all the new listeners because I know what it's like being new, and it's a little scary when you don't know what to expect. John, do you want to say anything to our new listeners? Yeah, glad you're here. We'll be nice to you. Pull up a tail. Pull up a chair. Yeah. Pull up a tail. Pull up a tail. (laughs) Pull a tail. (laughs) Pull up a a tail. (laughs) Nice. You guys, are you ready for the opening question? Yes. Yes. Let's do it. You guys probably heard that Merriam-Webster released their annual word of the year this week. Do you know what it is? Was it Riz? Oh, God, it should have been Riz. No, it's authentic. Oh. Oh, God. Which to me feels more like a mid- Ots word, you know, that's when everybody was just like, you need to tell your authentic story, you know? <laughs> Sophie was not happy by that choice. No, I don't like that word. I don't know. It just feels like that's one of those words that is like so overused. It just becomes kind of tacky. It's lost a little meaning. Yeah. And I feel like no one ever uses authentic and like it's grammatically correct. I mean, I guess it's all grammatically correct. I don't know. I just don't like the word authentic. It's like, it's like literally. Yeah, yes. Sophie authentically hates authentic. 
I literally hate authentic. <laughs> <laughs> well, all of it made me wonder what your thoughts are on what Portland's word of the year would be. And I'll give you mine because I know you guys need time to think. Um, mine would be reform because I just think a lot of big changes are not only needed but are coming and we're feeling those growing pains like from our city charter to our police oversight board to how we're locally dealing with a nationwide fentanyl crisis. So a lot of changes have been in motion, a lot of reform. What do you guys think? What are your words? This word in like the most ironic sense, just because I feel like every single politician in the area uses this word ad nauseum and like, but never acts on it. Urgency. Oh, that's a good one, Sophie. It's like, we need to do this with urgency, but we're also not going to do it. We'll just push it like down the road. You know, we'll kick the can down the road a little bit. But that's the word I think I just hear from every single mouth of every single politician a lot and nothing seems to be happening urgently. The the word that's sticking in my brain, um, which might not be the word of the year, but it's definitely been the word of the week for me, is COLA, as an acronym for cost of living adjustment, mm, uh, mm. which we will get into later in the show. I've been thinking a lot about COLA over the last couple weeks. Interesting. Nice, guys. So Sophie's word would be urgency in quotations, basically. And <laughs> yeah, <yes. laughs> John's COLA, which honestly, John, first time I've heard of it, so... <laughs> we'll, we'll be talking a lot about cola yeah. in probably about 10 minutes. <laughs> um, just wanted to give a big thanks to Will Fulton for that question. Uh, so, all right, let's move on to the news of the week. Well, John, what is your story of the week? What caught your eye? I heard about this teacher's strike. Did you guys, no, you guys heard, heard about it. this? Mm. So, well, it, it's over now, so you don't need to worry about <laughs> it. Um, yeah, I mean, the big news, the Portland Teachers Union, uh, after being on strike for nearly a month, the strike has ended. Uh, it's the longest U.S. teacher's strike anywhere in the country in 2023. But there was a sort of preliminary deal that was struck on Sunday. Then on Tuesday, the teachers voted overwhelmingly to ratify the contract, uh, like 95% of the uh, Portland Association of Teachers members who voted voted in favor of it, then the school board unanimously voted to pass that contract. Um, so it's been a really rocky month for everybody associated with education, from the board to the teachers to parents. Um, but there's finally a deal, and now everybody's just sort of chewing on that deal and trying to figure out if it was all worth it. What are the teachers saying? Like, are are they happy? Do they get the rats out? <laughs> I, I haven't I haven't checked on the rats. I think the rats were not codified in the deal. I, I don't know. It's tricky. I mean, the teachers did get a lot in this deal, right? They're getting a, a basically a thirteen point eight percent cost of living adjustment, aka COLA, over the next three years. That was like the big thing. The teachers are going to be getting more money. That's what they wanted. Um, middle and elementary school. Educators are going to be getting more time for planning, which was something they were really pushing for. Um, class sizes, which was another big sticking point, didn't really move. Uh, but yeah, in the fallout, there is a lot of questions going around about whether this was all worth it or not. Um, it was really disruptive. Uh, there's also a lot of frustration because... Now there's these makeup days that need to happen, right? Like they got to make up all the school days that didn't happen. And part of the district's plan to do that is to chop off half of the upcoming winter break to basically like take half of that break and turn it back into school days, which like everybody is pissed off about. Every time workers get their demands met, it was worth it. I'm sorry. Just a commie speaking over here in the corner. <laughs> Just 
<laughs> uh, not a commie. I'm joking. But to me, I'm just like, it was worth it. You know, I it was a compromise. They didn't get all of their demands met. You know, it's it, this was a long time coming. Um, they're not paid enough. The schools are falling apart. There are rats. Uh, it's just, it, it seemed impossible. I feel like something was going to break. And it did. And so putting that, not that you're doing this, John, but like putting that on the teachers and, you know, it is just, it's silly, you know? Yeah. I mean, something that people are saying uh, is that the school board says that they had offered uh, a cost of living adjustment of about 14% in late October if the teachers had agreed not to strike, which is like basically where they ended up. I see what you're saying. I'm not taking a position here, but there is an argument that, like, we could have gotten basically to the same place if, like, the people who were negotiating at the union had taken a deal that was on the table back in October, you know. And and another thing that's coming out of the reporting, the longtime chair of the Portland Association of Teachers bargaining team uh, resigned from his post this week. So, like, some people are really happy about the deal. Some people are not happy about it. I, there's also a lot of fingers that are pointing at the state as well, which is like a whole other issue. I don't know if you want me to dive into. Bad pointing or good pointing? Bad pointing. Oh. Because like a lot of the funding for schools comes from the state, you know? So like now there's all these questions of like, well, why isn't the state funding the schools more? Like wh why uh, did the school board have like a, this limited budget to have to work with. I mean, there are all these concerns now that, again, you can read into the politics of this a bunch of ways, but the district is saying they're going to have to cut about $175 million out of the budget to pay for all of these cost of living adjustments, you know, to pay for everything that was won in the contract. So like now the question is like, well, maybe the state needs to put more money into the schools statewide. And there's like a million school districts outside of Portland that are still in bargaining, that are still trying to reach a contract. So like, even though Portland settled, this isn't settled at a state level. I think one of the big questions I still have is where the union and the school districts seem to just be at complete odds was just about the sheer amount of money that the you know the fat that the district had to trim because the union kept saying you know we know they have this money in their budget they are lying about not having this money in their budget that we are asking for and the district you know really dug their heels and said we do not have this money there was a state like official who this you know was it das the uh, administrative services that came in and kind of broke it down or the the state's chief financial officer was involved yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. right and they came back and said there's very little fact that the district has to trim like they're not really lying here and the union said nope that's not right and it's sort of interesting that they brought in you know this expert who said there's not a lot of fat to trim but i think you know if you brought in another expert they might say otherwise so that whole thing is just that that is one thing that does not feel resolved to me and I don't think it necessarily needs to be resolved for these two parties to get along, obviously. But, like, I want to know who was right in that situation. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. I mean, and and I think, you know, like I said, there's all these districts that are still negotiating. And I think that one thing that comes out of any sort of labor negotiation is it sets a precedent for the next bargaining team to step up and say, like, well, Portland got this. Like, we're not going to settle for anything less than that. So, like, even though it's settled in Portland, this could sort of become a cascading issue in other school districts across the state that then the state is going to, like, 
potentially have to respond to. And like, you know, the governor, I think, is sort of has an eye on that. On Tuesday this week, she was sort of raising the idea of like raising the minimum salary for teachers across the state. Um, That doesn't mean that it's happening, but like. But she had a nice thought. Yeah, she, she had, had a nice, nice thought. thought, you know, I mean, and like, you know, I don't think that she was just like speculating over a cup of tea, you know, if she's coming out and saying that there is some sort of political calculation behind it as well. So yeah, a lot more coming still. You know what we should do, John? Become teachers? We should we should become teachers. Sophie, do you want to join us? No. <laughs> you, oh, no. I'm not a patient person. We, we, we've got a nice stress-free <laughs> job as journalists, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's cushy over here. All right, well, let's take a quick break here. And when we return, more news of the week. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Sophie, what's your story about? Okay. The story I wrote uh, this week is about the fate of uh, two mobile home parks in Southeast Portland. And the story actually began really in 2018 uh, when the Portland City Council essentially changed its zoning codes to make it much harder for current mobile home parks to be, you know, redeveloped either into single family homes or apartment complexes. Basically, these homes are, you know, so modest that only people of under a certain income are going to want to live in those homes. But uh, fast forward to 2020, um, and there was a developer in Southeast Portland and an associate of his that owned two um, separate mobile home parks. But one of those developers had put in development permits like two weeks before the city changed its zoning codes. He technically could redevelop those mobile home parks and they intended to. They wanted to, you know, kick everyone off those lots and build a bunch of single family homes. Um, And I think between the two mobile home parks, there were about 35 families who lived in those. So in 2021, at one of these mobile home parks, the owner basically told these you know, homeowners, you got to get off the land by October or November of this year because I'm going to redevelop this thing. That caught the attention of Commissioner Dan Ryan. And he tried to convince uh, this developer to essentially cancel those permits. So what he did is he um, basically wrote up a letter of intent, which is, is basically like a good faith agreement. It's not legally binding. So Dan Ryan offered um, this developer $3.5 million for one of the mobile home parks and then also agreed, you know, he said this this offer is contingent upon the, own, the other owner of the mobile home park, um, you know, agreeing to cancel the permit. So essentially, Dan Ryan's thinking was great. Uh, the city will essentially, through a nonprofit, 
purchase one of these mobile home parks, but the other one, the permits will be canceled. And so, you know, you can't, we can't um, redevelop it. Fast forward to earlier this year. That's when Commissioner Carmen Rubio inherits the Housing and Development Bureaus, which is what Dan had controlled before. So she sort of inherited this letter of intent that Dan had signed. And immediately she was like, whoa, this price seems way off. That $3.5 million for a 1.5-acre lot with mobile homes on it, that doesn't seem right. So they um, they paid for a real estate appraisal, and the appraisal came back at saying, actually, we think this lot is only worth $1.5 million. So she was like, whoa, we are going to pay $2 million more for uh, you know, a lot than we should be paying. And she argued, and Dan would, I think, probably take issue with this, is that the deal wouldn't really protect this other mobile home park. So now she's sort of reneged on the deal and she is trying to renegotiate a deal that's either for the same price with an additional protection for the other mobile home park, or she's trying to get a lower price for just that one mobile home park. What I'm hearing is that uh, the commissioners are fighting again. You know, it's interesting because Dan Ryan and his responses to us, he didn't want to fight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He said, I support Rubio's renegotiations. I believe my deal would have adequately protected everyone. Sometimes it's not about the number you're paying. Sometimes it's just about doing the quote unquote right thing. Um, So I think he's really not trying to pick a fight. I think that might be because he knows that if he were to get into sort of a squabble with Carmen Rubio, that she may come out on top. Because I think especially with our city in a total budget crisis right now, in particular, a couple of our of our bureaus, you know, overpaying for a lot by $2 million, I think it could be, you know, that's it's a glaring mistake if that appraisal is solid. Something that I was confused about when I was reading your story was just like how these valuations actually work. So, okay, you you said that it had recently been appraised at $1.5 million, but the owner had paid $3.3 million for it not that long ago. Like, Mm -hmm. what accounts for that disparity? Did this developer just get a bad deal on the land? Or is it something like with the change in the use, it was worth three point three dollars if it's going to turn into a high-rise – But as a mobile home park, it's only worth 1.5. Like, is that what it is? Yeah. Something we are still a little baffled by is not the valuation of the land, not the appraisal itself, but that 3.3 million price tag in 2020. Mm -hmm. So the owner of one of the mobile home parks sold the other mobile home park to this other developer for 3.3 million. It was an off-market private listing. So, you know, it wasn't opened up to other buyers. It was like pretty much a one-to-one. And then, you know, we have this really pretty thorough appraisal by a really, you know, well-known real estate group come out where they did, you know, they did their whole, I mean, these, these appraisals, they pick these things apart and they also look at comparable properties. Um, And they came back and said in its developable state, if you wanted to turn it into apartment buildings, if you wanted to turn it into single family homes, we believe this land is worth $1.5 million. The, the appraisal itself didn't necessarily like it, it touched on the fact that they touched on this $3.3 million price and they didn't explain like their theory around it. But they did say, you know, the developer told us it was a private off market listing. So it's really unclear where that price came from. But I think there's a little bit of suspicion um, that, you know, there was maybe a, a sweetheart deal a little bit in 2020, an inflated price. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, also, you know, in 2020, 
uh, houses just were worth more. And appraisals are always like connected to the current market, from my understanding. Do you think that has anything to do with that? I mean, maybe a little bit, but two million, a $2 million gap, I don't. I think that is unexplainable. And I believe that the appraisal had also noted what it would have been worth at that time, what they would have believed it would have been worth at that time. I think they said it would be worth $1.2 million versus $1.5 million. So like, the, you know, the, the ginormous difference between $3.3 million in 2020 and $1.5 million in 2023, just like, mm, it's hard to explain that. Yeah. I mean, it is just interesting to think, though, like in the face of the housing crisis, what this says about the cost of like square yardage of land. Right. And like the detail that really stuck out to me in your story, Sophie, was that the residents, they own their homes, they own their mobile homes, but not the land underneath them. Of course, that's like why this is such an issue. Um, And like, you know, three point five million dollars to like save the homes of 30 odd people who like would otherwise get kicked out who like otherwise don't have an affordable option is like a noble thing for the city to do but i can also see it in the other direction where it's like if we really want to boost affordable housing in the city this is just a sign of how expensive it's going to be going parcel of land by parcel of land right yeah i think one thing we didn't get into in this article partially because like we have i have limited words that i can write <laughs> not a piece of paper but um <laughs> Is, you know, I think there's an argument and I think the developers had maybe made this argument a couple years back of uh, if they they wanted to build 73 single family affordable homes in place of 35 current mobile home units. So there's kind of this weird tension between, okay, technically, if we just look at the net numbers, we would have housed more people if we had redeveloped. But then also, of course, there's the idea of like, okay, but we're displacing 35 people. What if all those people can't find housing? So just looking at the numbers and sort of none of the underlying context, it actually probably makes more sense to allow them to redevelop. Um, But of course, then you've got these like 35 really sympathetic people who have, you know, many of them have lived in these uh, mobile homes for decades and are elderly and might be on disability. but, but that's sort of a, an interesting tension that, that I don't think we really explored a lot in this article, but was there for sure. Do we know where this is going? Like, do we know what happens next? So my understanding from kind of talking to all the parties involved is that they are circling on um, a deal because earlier this year, Carmen Rubio's office presented the, you know, these developers with three new options. Two of them were for a lower price. And then their third deal, which was the highest price tag, they said, okay, we'll give you guys 3.5 million, but we also want you to revoke the development permits on both of the lots and at the other lot that they're not buying, um, we want to put in a 30-year income restriction for future homeowners. So future future homeowners would have to make 100% or less of area median income. And so Rubio's office would argue that, hey, we're, we're protecting this other mobile home park more than Dan would have protected it with his deal for the same price tag. And I think Rubio's office really feels like they kind of got painted into a corner hmm. with this letter of intent that Dan Ryan signed, which said, hey, we think, you know, the city's going to offer you $3.5 million. It made negotiations for Rubio's office a lot harder. So even though there's an appraisal saying $1.5 million, it makes it awkward when someone six months prior said, we'll give you $3.5 million, and you come back saying, we only want to give you $1.5 million. But see, yeah, this is what happens when you have commissioners that, you know, hopscotch bureaus, and there's always deals that don't get closed in between. It just sounds awful because, I mean, anyone who works for an office or anyone or just, you know, in a collaborative spirit knows how annoying that is. 
when someone starts a project and you have to finish it and you're like, what the fuck is this? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so, I can't imagine, like, we're all, I feel like I'm like a broken record um, on these shows where I'm just like, I cannot wait for the charter reform, you know? But I can't imagine that the commissioners themselves aren't saying that themselves, like, aren't like, just like, dude, this like really blows, <laughs> this form of government <laughs> is not effective. <laughs> like, And the other thing too, I mean, that's a good point, Claudia. Like, I... I think this is yet another example of where our commission form of government is just inappropriate for the time we're in. Like city commissioners mm-hmm. should not be making land deals. No. It should be a city administrator. <laughs> yeah. It should be staff who is trained in this kind of thing. Um, I think it's another. Yeah, I just think it's another example of why this form of government is it's just irresponsible at this point. Totally. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sophie. Uh, we're going to link to your article in the show notes if anybody wants to go and go in a little deeper. It's really interesting, and I hated that I had sympathy for every commissioner. So thank you, Sophie, for that. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I did this too. is such I a tough spot for, like, I just, I, my heart went out for, like, all of them. I was like, this is awful. Yeah. That is awful. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about how the Burnside Bridge is scheduled to close for five years for a complete seismic rebuild, meaning the bridge as we know it is coming down and a new earthquake-proof bridge is going up. And the project is tentatively scheduled to start sometime in 2027. I'm saying tentatively because full funding has not been secured. And the current cost of the new bridge is up to $895. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Discount. Discount bridge. (laughs) Claudia is now in charge of urban planning for the city of Portland. She's like, how much could a bridge cost? $1,000. I'm going to build this bridge. (laughs) All right. Anyhow, let me say that again. The uh, the cost is up to $895 million uh, and, you know, probably going to go up. And the long closure is partly due to the Endangered Species Act, which means working the river is constrained to times when the endangered salmon are not running because it would normally not take five years to build a bridge of that size. And all of this is happening because seismologists have been warning the Pacific Northwest that we are due for a very very, very large quake along the Cascadia subduction zone. And that's the fault that runs about 700 miles long from Cape Mendocino, California, up to Vancouver Island in Canada. That's a lot of area and a lot of people. Um, And I just learned this, but the longer the fault line, the larger the quake. So it's predicted that our big one will be anywhere between a magnitude of eight to nine in the Richter scale. And as a region, we're not prepared. We're not really prepared because (laughs) 45 years ago, no one knew that that fault line was here. 45 years ago is not a long time. And it yeah. wasn't until 30 years ago that non-Indigenous people learned that the Cascadia fault line even produced major earthquakes. And I say non-Indigenous because peop- the people who've lived here for thousands of years they knew what's up. did have oral records. Yeah, they were just like, yeah, there's these large earthquakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the last one they noted was in the 1700s. So according yeah. to scientists, that means we're a bit overdue. And Sophie, this is what I'm going to scare you. And the odds of it happening in the next 50 years are roughly one in three. I mean, it's coming. Yeah. 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 Um, it's the sort of thing that's just going to be so catastrophic. It's, I feel like there's two types of people, people who are like very deep into like prepper life and have everything down in their basement ready to go. And then people like me that are just sort of like, eh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. and, I think that, and I think that city and municipal government is sort of more on my team than uh, the prepper team. <laughs> Oh no, I don't like that one bit. Sophie, what do you 
how are you feeling? You 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 have this look in your face where it, it's <laughs> it's like annoyance mixed with a hint of something, and I just want to know cardamom, cinnamon. Like what is that? What is that scent? Okay, I have two different like strains of thought. One of them is just about bridges in general, and then the <laughs> okay. second one is about the big one. And I think I sway on the side of like I don't understand why. Of all the things we could be preparing for the earthquake, this is, I'm sure this can be very easily debunked. And so I'm probably going to sound very ignorant. But why of all the things we're preparing for the earthquake, like we're preparing a bridge? Oh, I can't wait to, t- I cannot wait to answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's, okay. That's one. Because right, like only one. so many people can fit on the very, like there's only oh, going to be 50 cars on the bridge when the big one comes and they're going to be great. But then what about the rest of us? You know, like can't just stake yeah. out on the bridge forever. Dude, you're landing me that spike. Go on. No, no, no. Now now I don't want to go on because I want you to explain. But you're like, I hate bridges. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think all the reporting I've seen on bridges is like, it is very important reporting, but like the I-5 replacement bridge, the Burnside Bridge, one, mm. I don't understand. And again, I'm sure this is another thing that can be very easily explained. Why it's so expensive to build a bridge? Because they're really big, Sophie. <laughs> so Second big. of all, why it takes so long, and three, why we just can't like figure out how to build these bridges, 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 within, <laughs> and why we can't. It really takes away from my argument when I say bridges, um, <laughs> um, and why we can't figure out like how to build these bridges within budget and on time. Like they just, it never seems to happen, and that mm-hmm. is just frustrating for me. Okay. Well, just an FYI, Portland already has three bridges that were built recently enough that we don't have to rebuild um, and are uh, predicted to withstand a 9.0 earthquake with minor damage, which is the Sovi Island Bridge, the Tillicum Crossing, and the Selwood Bridge. Mm-hmm. But okay. every other bridge, Sophie, every other bridge is predicted <laughs> to collapse or sustain enough damage that would completely take it out of operation until repaired. So, John, our precious St. John's Bridge is expected to completely collapse or come very close to it. Even it's a bad bridge. It's a, it's, it's a very it was it's a bad bridge. Even with its newly reinforced concrete pier columns, it's supposed to come down. And not to be dramatic, but I don't know if I want to live in a Portland without a St. John's Bridge. Mm-hmm. But so the county owns most of the Portland bridges and is prioritizing the Burnside Bridge, Sophie, due to its central location and its prediction that it would most definitely fall. And it would immediately block the main river channel, which would we would need. And it also, this is crazy, connects some of the busiest streets in town and spans over the part of the Interstate 5 that connects to the 84 and also hangs over a crucial railroad line. So if Burnside were to fall, the links between Washington County to Portland and Gresham would be severed. And a large amount of people would be cut off from supplies and emergency services, not to mention just the cost of life because the Burnside ramp also hovers over Nadra Parkway, some major TriMet lines, and pedestrian walkways that are mm-hmm. highly trafficked. So strategically speaking, this was the best bridge to start with. You sound like a paid lobbyist for the Burnside Bridge. <laughs> It was very compelling. <laughs> I was just reporting, Sophie. <laughs> it was just facts I was telling you. Have you guys seen the video, though? Like, the the sort of, like, digital rendering of the Burnside Bridge falling down? Oh, my oh, gosh. It's, it's been around for years. But it's, like, 
almost like comedically intense, like digital rendering of like the collapsing of the Burnside Bridge. I I encourage anybody who like wants to scare themselves into laughter, check it out. You know what? We'll link it. We'll We'll link link it. it. We'll We'll link it. it. Yeah. So what do you guys think? Have I convinced you, Sophie, that rebuilding the, the Burnside Bridge is worth the five years of horrible traffic? Yeah, well, I think that we should have probably done that before we did like the little itty bitty ones that you were talking about before. But anyways, ignorance is bliss and I'm choosing ignorance. (laughs) I mean, I am just like, this is a process that has been happening for forever. We've been talking about replacing the Burnside Bridge, right? Like there was a plan that was put together back in 2015. Like I wouldn't be not at all surprised if this got delayed. But like even still, like even if this does get pushed back, I think it is interesting that like this has momentum in a way that like the I-5 bridge, which has been being talked about for just as long, if not longer, like seems dead in the water right now. And I'm wondering if, like, is that the political difference between it being a county bridge versus a sort of like interstate bridge? Like, how is this able to keep moving when some of these other infrastructure projects are just dead in the water? Mm. My understanding of why the I-5 replacement bridge has been such, it it seems like there's, um, uh, I mean, I think it has to do with the Washington and Oregon's legislatures like not being able to come to an agreement about who's going to fund what part and also like the federal funding part hasn't really like I think we didn't get into like the top 10 that you know this latest infrastructure bill would have funded so I think Mm -hmm. that I think that one is a little bit more uh, politically stubborn than Mm -hmm. this one is because you're you know you're involving like two state legislatures and then the feds as well Um, I think more than the Burnside Bridge Claudia, I did want to point out you missed one of the most important things that is at stake here, which is the fate of the Burnside Skate Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would also <laughs> definitely. This is actually why they started with the Burnside Bridge. I'm sorry to bury the lead there. <laughs> to protect the Burnside Skate Park. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's so funny is I knew, I just didn't mention it because I'm like, no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> I care. I'm sorry, John. I didn't mean that. Everyone cares. But, no, you know. I mean, and I, and I should know the answer to this. So f- please forgive me if I'm wrong, but isn't the Burnside Skate Park sort of like its days are numbered either way? Isn't there like some agreement that once this renovation takes place that they're going to close down the skate park anyways? I don't know. Um... No, I've not heard of that. And that's actually wasn't in any of the articles, but it could just be similar to me (laughs) being like, 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 nobody but John is like (laughs) focused on the state. I'm like, did did you hear me say like the TriMet lines (laughs) would get Voodoo Donuts? Voodoo Donuts is up the other end of the Burnside Bridge. What's going to happen to Voodoo Donuts? Oh my God. I'm sorry. This was a terrible book report. John, I'll do better next week. I need the facts. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you guys, thank you so much for hanging with me. Sophie, thank you so much for bringing us your story. As always. Thanks for that. Thanks for being here, guys. Yeah, thanks. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thanks so much for listening. Our executive producer is John Atariani. Our producers were Julia Fiaioni and AKL Muman. Our newsletter editors this week were Rachel Monahan and Andrea Salenzi. And our host is me, Claudia Meza. Original music by Jenny Conley and Stephen Drizos. Additional music by Epidemic Sound and All the Kimonos. We'll be back Monday morning with more from around the city. 
Until then, see you at Slim's.